One of the challenges of preaching through a book, as I've picked up Genesis again, that's what we're working on, and as we're preaching through a book, is one of the challenges is when you get to some of the more um, difficult passages, uh, you, if you're going to work through the book, you still have to address those difficult passages. But one of the nice things is you are forced to spend some time in a difficult passage, and it helps you to understand it more. That's one of the things that we're going to do today because we've come to one of those more difficult, more challenging uh, passages there. What I hope is that you gain a better understanding of not only uh, this passage here as we study it today, that's certainly what I want you to do, but I also want you to be able to uh, get a better understanding of of how that passage that you take it to a point where you progress to a point where you realize that of what how it impacts life because really if all you do is read scripture and and maybe even gain some knowledge um if you have if you, if you don't get to that place where it's applied to life a, a better understanding is a good thing but it's incomplete you know, it's just flat out incomplete just to, to be settled for a better understanding. You know, God gave us his word and he gave us his word to guide our relationships uh, and to guide us into a relationship with him, but into a relationship with him, then that impacts us in such a way then that, that it transforms our life, that it, that it gets into our everyday living. If it doesn't impact your living, my question would be, did you, did, did you, really, did you really get it? Did you really understand it? You know, do you really, have you actually even heard it if it doesn't impact your living? So we're going to take this passage on into that. Let's pray and uh, we'll get into this a little bit more today. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it's impacted my life. And I think of where I, where I was really before I came to that place where I realized that, that uh, not only that I mattered to you, but that you matter. Um, it matters that you're God, and it makes a difference. And we need to realize that to such a point and such a degree that it does indeed affect our living, that it matters that you are God, that it matters that, that you are alive, that it matters how we live in this world because we are yours when we come to know Christ. So guide our thoughts as we look into your word. It's not here just because uh, you wanted to give us some information. Uh, that we could say, gee, that's nice, but it's here because you want us to learn. You want us to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. So guide us toward that end, we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis 38, so turn there if you will. It's on page 35 if you're using the Pew Bible. Pew Bible's new uh, home and Christian standard, and that's uh, what I'm what I, I'm uh, preaching from. So whatever you're most comfortable with, feel free to do that. My plan is to cover the entire chapter in uh, three smaller sections as we walk through this. As we go along, I'm going to point out some observations, some applications along the way. Uh, most of your outline is really going to be filled in in the first part, and what you'll see is it's repeated. <laughs> Those same points are repeated as we as we continue through this chapter. Um, so you're going to see right away as we get into this, uh, it's at a time, it's at a cultural setting much different than what we're used to today. That doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. That doesn't mean that it doesn't apply. What it means is as we understand that a little bit more, we'll see, gee, things really haven't changed as much as maybe we thought they did. 
um, the, the, the concerns, I think, are very applicable today. So last week we looked at chapter 37, and as we were looking at 37, I mentioned that they were making a transition from Jacob or Israel uh, to Joseph, and that he would become more and more the main character. I did tell you that it would be almost like a little parenthesis. This is that, if you will, parenthesis. I don't think it's a parenthesis in the sense of an afterthought. I think what he was doing as we look at chapter 38, it shifts away from Joseph and focuses on Jacob, and it's really giving us a little more details, uh, some more details on that transition and, and what, uh, what uh, God has been doing. And you'll see as we go through this, uh, you know, what he, how he is working in individual lives again and touches us as well. Uh, verse 1, <coughs> the first 11 verses, chapter 38, says, At that time Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. Uh, he took her as, a wife, as his wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. Uh, she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. That's the only guy I know named Shelah. You know. uh, it, it was at Chazib that, he gave, that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Now put a marker there or something, you know, uh, uh, we're going to pick up in, in verse 12 in a little bit. But, um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind as I read this, and this is one of the things we need to understand, the Bible accurately records the sins and the foolishness of God's people. You know, we, we don't always realize that. Uh, the, the Bible accurately records the sins and the foolishness of God's people, and that some of it is there so we can learn and so we can understand ourselves a little bit more. And this is, I think, one of those, uh, one of those spots. Now, realize, you know, because some things are foolish doesn't mean they're sinful. Now, the two are very often present together. Uh, and, and I, I think sin falls, follows very quickly on the heels of, of foolishness. Uh, but, in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul is writing, and he, you know, he he tells them. He says, "Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything." So he's saying, you know, that, that while everything's permissible, some it's not helpful. Some of it would still be foolish, you know, to to do, even though you can do something. Why? Well, you know. I have a lot of I have a lot of that in my life. You know, I would like to tell you in the past. I'm hoping that none's coming in the future. But um, I've I've chosen foolishly and to do some foolish things before. Uh, but he's saying, you know, here's a good um, way for you to judge on some of that. You know, it, it might, might be permissible, but is it helpful? Is what you're doing helpful? You know, is what you're saying 
helpful? You know, is what you're saying is what is what you're saying to your to your children helpful? Is what you're saying to your spouse helpful? Is what you're saying to your neighbor helpful? To your coworker, is it helpful? You know, you know, you can say, well, it's true, but is it helpful? I think we have to understand that, and I think we have to realize that. Uh, you know, that we can say some things that are true, but they're not helpful. In fact, sometimes they're hurtful. You know, your mother was a wise woman. If she told you if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. Um, you know, it's very, very foolish, uh, you know, sometimes. But this is what he's talking about, you know. Everything is permissible, but not everything's helpful. Everything is permissible. I'm not going to be brought under the control of anything. So as you think about it, you know, make it part of your goal. Part of your goal in life, you know, to avoid sin and to avoid foolishness. And again, foolishness is very often the precursor to sin. Foolishness very often is, you know, it is running ahead and sin is is just right there with it. You know, they're they're like, you know, I was going to say Siamese twins. Um, they're they're like a Siamese hose on a welding tank. You know that they're stuck together. Uh, you know, and it's hard. <coughs> you know, they're they're you often see them right there together. And this chapter here in Genesis, it continues to show us the poor, uh, maybe even desperate spiritual condition of some of Jacob's sons, some of Israel's sons, Israel the man at this point as it start, as the nation uh, is starting out. In chapter 34, if you remember, they slaughtered the men of Shechem in retaliation for their sister being raped. Now, understand, you know, rape is wrong. Rape is never justified never it's just there's no way there's no way that you can um, that you can justify that uh, murder is also wrong and murder is never justified again there's there's no way you can do that see the, the thing for us is you don't respond to sin with sin you, you don't do that you don't respond to sin with more sin that is both foolish and sinful you know, it's not only foolish, it's, it's sinful to do that. And in chapter 34, we see that's what some of his sons did. Chapter 35, Reuben, then Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine while Jacob was out on a journey. Uh, possibly he was trying to, you know, solidify his position as firstborn. Again, it was both foolish and sinful for him to do that. Chapter 37, that we looked at last week, they abuse their brother Joseph. They sell him into slavery. Again, foolish and sinful. You know, they sinned against him. They sinned, and then they lied to their father to try to cover it up. If you can listen to last week's sermon online if you want to. Uh, you know, it was both foolish and sinful. Here we are in chapter 38, and Judah follows through, uh, you know, uh, some, of his, some of his foolish and sinful choices. And this chapter begins to show us, it, it begins to draw again a, a, much, a much sharper distinction between Joseph and his brothers. While Joseph is not perfect, I, I believe he, he makes a sincere effort to follow God. That's going to unfold more and more as we go through chapters 39 through 50 as in the coming weeks, you know, as we work our way through this. But here, Judah, notice what he does. He separates himself from his family. It says, you know, that he moved away. He go, he went and lived by the, the, the Adulamite. He went and lived in the land of Canaan there. And, uh, you know, he went and separated himself. He went and lived there. It was a foolish choice. We're not told why he did this. You know, we're not told that why he did it we're only told that he did do this that he moved away now it's tough at best and impossible at worst to remain strongly committed to the lord when you separate yourself from god's people 
Some people think they can do that. I can be a Christian and not go to church. You know, I'll tell you one thing without a doubt. You cannot be a biblical Christian and do that. Uh, you know, but here, you know, you know he, he separates himself. And, you know, you, you will, it's, it is, you, you're setting yourself up for trouble. You know, a Christian who stays away from the gathering with others who have a relationship to Christ is in a very dangerous place. And they end up with a weakened faith. You know, they may still have a relationship to Christ, but they end up with a weakened faith. It is not a, a place of, of strength at all. When, when I talk to people, and some people tell me, you know, that they, they don't, don't go to church anymore. Why? Well, because this or that happened. You have put yourself in a weakened place by separating yourself from others who know Christ and others who, you know, God intends for his people to be together and to support each other, to help each other grow, to help each other avoid sin, to help each other set aside sin. That comes up over and over and over again in scripture. And that's part of why he calls us together and calls us to be together. God has gifted his people, it says, to be a body together, to, to be interdependent upon one another. He uses the picture of a physical body more than one in describing the church and he said i can't say to the hand you know, because i'm not an eye i'm not part of the body you know he goes on and he says these things and he said you know which part of your body your physical body right now do you you know well you want to live without you know which hand which foot which eye which finger you see this is the picture he uses of the body and that interdependence upon one another <laughs> to help, uh, you know, to help us be more than we could ever be on our own. My head only goes where my legs will take me. You know, my hands can only do can only do what my mind tells it to do. It, that interdependent there, a, a picture of the body, and that's the picture that he uses for the body for the body of Christ. In fact, that's why we call it the body of Christ. You know, the, the, the picture of of the church together. And here, what we see. You know, as Judas separates himself, and he separates himself, you know, not only from those who were following God, but now he goes and he chooses to live among those not following God. So he separates himself from others, you know, who had that understanding, commitment, and belief in God, and he goes and lives among those who don't, and it says he marries a woman, a woman from among the people who didn't follow God, a foolish choice and a sinful choice. And then it goes on and it says he arranged for a wife for his son from among those who didn't follow God. Again, foolish and sinful. Because the time, you know, the, 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 those that you spend time with affect the choices you make. It's still true for us today. Those you spend time with affect the choices you make. And when you begin to hang around with those and you begin to spend more and more and more time of your time with those who don't know Christ, guess what's going to happen? You say, well, yeah, no, I, I can, I can, you know, I, I can, I can bring them to, to a relationship, you know. No, you know, if you separate yourself from the people of God and begin then to spend all that time instead with those who don't know Christ, you're going to be in a weakened position. I'm not saying that you don't spend time with those who don't know Christ. What I'm saying is you continue to spend time with those who do know Christ, those who have a relationship with Christ, so that when you're with those who don't know 
Christ, who don't have a relationship with Christ, that you can be that influence for them, that you can be the one who helps lift them up. Why? Because you have been strengthening yourself together with the body. And here, you know, Judas makes a poor choice, a foolish choice, a sinful choice. Uh, and and the, uh, his forefathers knew the importance of, of, of choosing a mate for their sons who had the same commitment to God um, as they had. That's huge. That's a huge thing. You know, in Corinthians, he, tells, he says, don't be unequally yoked. You know, you don't put a, a, a believer and a non-believer. People come to me, and they, I, I can remember talking with couples about the wedding. And, oh, you know, one of, them, one of them had a relationship with Christ and the other didn't. Jeff and Jill Elliott, some of you remember Jeff and Jill. And when they came to me, uh, you know, Jeff had a relationship with Christ, Jill didn't. And, uh, you know, they were in my office and we were talking and, um, and I said, I, I can't do this wedding. You know, and they looked at me and why? You know, I, I said, I, I can't do this wedding. Uh, you know, Jeff, you have a relationship with Christ and Jill, you don't. And so, and they were talking, and and here's where I knew that um, she was understanding what I was saying. She said, she said, I know. She said, you and Jeff both have your little story. I don't have a little story. And I knew what she was talking about. We could both tell her how it is we came into a relationship with Christ, and she realized she didn't have that. You know, she didn't have that. And, and I remember in my discussion with them, and I was talking, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do the wedding. And she said, she looked at me. She said, would you still do the counseling? And I hesitated for a minute, and I said, I said, not if you think I'm going to do the wedding at the end. I said, I'll, I'll do the counseling, but you need to understand, I will not do the wedding. And she, you know, she understood that. So we started doing it. We did the counseling. She started to come to church here, she and Jeff, and um, and, and it was, you know, after, during communion, one Sunday during communion, um, she got her little story, if you will. She came into a relationship with Christ, and it was it was interesting. I didn't know it at the time or anything. She called me up on Monday morning. She said, "Can I come and see you after you know after work today?" I said, "Yeah, you know, that'd be fine." Uh, and um, you know, she came in and you know she she walked in the office and she had a smile on her face and stands you know by my desk, sticks her hand out, and she said, "Yeah." I just want to thank you. And she told me about how she gave her life to Christ. And what a neat picture, you know, but what a neat picture. It's it, huge. It is huge. And Jeff and Joe went on, you know, and serving God together. Just a neat picture, you know, and to see how God had transformed Joe's life has just been an amazing thing. But, uh, you see, it makes a huge difference, you know. Our oldest daughter, Marcy, you know, when she was dating Andy, Andy wasn't a Christian yet, and um, and we were concerned, you know, we were, um, it was a big concern for us, uh, a big enough concern that we came, you know, we, we came to, uh, Mandy and Peter, you know, the two younger siblings. And we said, we are not paying for you to go. We'll help, we'll help you to a Christian college. We will not help you go to a, a, a non-Christian college, you know, and so also, anyway, as Marcy and Andy's relationship was progressing and, uh, you know, he wanted to get married and, and, uh, you know, Marcy's explained to her, you know, they can't, you know, because of this, she was a Christian. He wasn't. He said, well, I thought we could work out this God thing after we got married. And I'm telling you, they're not here so I can talk about them. Um, <laughs> I am telling you, one of the greatest things was my daughter's reply. 
She said, no, we work out this God thing before we get married. It's huge. It is huge. You know, we prayed for Christian mates for our children, and God, God gave all three of our children Christian mates whom we love, whom we are thrilled with. And now we're praying like crazy for our grandchildren, you know, uh, that God will give them solid Christian mates because it's huge and it makes a difference. Here he is and he, you know, he, he marries someone who's not a Christian. His, he, that's not what he was brought up with. That's not the history that, you know, that, that Judah had. Abraham, and, uh, you know, Abraham made certain that his son Isaac didn't marry a woman from the land they were living in. Genesis 24. And I will have you swear by the Lord. He's talking to one of, Abraham's talking to one of his servants. The Lord of God of heaven and of earth that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Isn't that interesting? Um, but will go to my land and to my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. Isaac learned that. You know, because when Isaac made sure Jacob didn't marry a, a woman from the land they were living in. Genesis 24. 28, Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. And here we have Jacob's son, Judah. What does he do? He foolishly blows right past all of these things. He goes right past all of these things, and he marries a Canaanite woman, a sinful choice. He marries someone, you know, who doesn't know, who, who doesn't know God, who doesn't know who God is. And then what does he do? Judah's son, Ur, he, Judah arranges his marriage, you know, for his son, Ur, and marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. Now we're told, it says, Ur was evil in the Lord's sight, so God killed him. We're not told specifically what the evil, what Ur did, was what he was involved in. We're just told he was evil, and so God, you know, God killed him. You know, some of the things we should notice here, and one is, you know, what is, what is evil is determined by God, not by the society in which we live. What's evil is determined by God, not by society, not by how, how society, you know, judges things. Our society has a much different definition of evil than God does. And society's standards constantly change. They consistently change. God does, God does not. Follow God, not society. Just an, an example for you. Our society values, you know, some behavior is acceptable that even desired that, you know, that God condemns. Oh, an example of that is uh, David was talking about the Hope Center. You know, it's a, a woman's right to choose is held by our society as more important than the life of her child. Follow God, not society. And society, you know, condemns some behavior that God tells us to do. You know, God, we we should stand up for the unborn. We should we should you know do things. We should not only support places like Hope Ministry. We should be people who who support life and and, and promote life. And you know, but you know that's looked down upon in our society. Follow God, not society. What is evil is determined by God, not by society. Another thing for you to learn. It's not in your outline, but you can certainly write it down. God will not put up with a sinful lifestyle forever. That's biblical, not only from here, but as Paul, again, is writing to the Corinthians, the 11th chapter, it's a passage that we look at when, when, uh, we, when we do communion. And uh, he says, you know, you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he goes on, he says, that you should not eat the bread or drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. And he goes on and he says, you know, for, for he who eats and drinks, uh, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. 
For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. A number of you have died, is what he's talking about. A number of you have died. Why? Well, because you, you, you are, you are, you eat and drink, he says, every time you do that, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, they're saying, you know, that I have this relationship with Christ and they, they weren't living that relationship to Christ. And he says, you know, so some of you are weak, sick, some, some, some to the point of death. Here's the picture for you. It, you know, when our kids were growing up and, you know, they'd play in the parking lot and, you know, and do things. And we lived right, you know, on the other side of the parking lot. And, uh, you know, I can remember more than once, you know, Peter would be out there doing something. And um, I just wasn't real thrilled with what he was doing. You know what I'd do? I'd open that window and I'd say, Peter, get up here. I called him home. That's what I did. God's only going to put up with so much foolishness and so much sin. Not only from society as a whole, and you know, all of us think about that, but also with individuals. Does God still call some individuals home? I think he does. I think he does. I'm not going to try to judge, you know, which, which one it is and which one it isn't, but uh, it, it, it's there in the Bible. We need to address uh, the event starting in, in verse 8 in uh, Genesis 38 there it's, it, because it seems very strange to us. Uh, it says, Ur died, you know, so Judah, tell, you know, Judah tells his son, uh, Onan there in verse 8, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. We find this creepy. The story gets creepier, uh, but you know we, we find we, we, we find it. Th- this is called you know this is called a lever at marriage, uh, not not in the sense of following Levi. It's 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 referred to. It's a, a Latin word, I believe. Is it Latin? I don't know. We'll make it up. Anyway, it, it refers to you know an in law that that connection there. And what what a leverite marriage is? It happened when a man died before he have had offspring to pass on his inheritance to. And again, you know, you can say, well, this is sexist. Just understand the society. It didn't pass on to a daughter. It passed on to a son, you know. And you say, well, that's wrong. Well, if you're going to get all huffy, then you're going to miss what the Bible's teaching us, you know. Um, the, the, the whole thing here, you know, it, they didn't have a male offspring. Uh, so what would happen is then the, the widow was to be taken as a wife by the closest male relative, which was usually a brother-in-law. This is the picture of what we see unfolding in the book of Ruth. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, take a pen and write it down on the back of your hand. Read Ruth. Uh, in the book of Ruth, it's a short book, so you know you, you could do it in an afternoon. It won't hurt you at all. You can do it in less than an hour, probably less than a half hour. Anyway, in the book of Ruth, um, there's you know three sons. <laughs> I love the name Chilion and uh, the other ones. Anyway, uh, you know, and and so these. Uh, all three sons die, and there's Ruth and Orpah, and they, and they say, well, Ruth says, I, I, I don't have, and I don't have another son for you. You know, I don't have another son for you. Well, anyway, Ruth hangs with her. They go back, and, and they uh, get to, you know, glean in field and Boaz's field, and Ruth says, he's, he's a kinsman redeemer, some of what the, some of the translations say. He is the one, he's the next closest, he's the relative, he's the one who, you know, will fulfill this, what, what they're talking about here. And if you remember, then Boaz says, wait, there's a one closer, there's one closer, there's one ahead of me in line. This is what he's talking about. 
This picture that that you see happening right here, that's what the whole, you know, the, that, that goes through the whole book of Ruth there. And it was to preserve the man's, the, man, the family line and to preserve the property within the family. And, and this is, you know, that was huge to them. That was important to them, particularly as they were inheriting the land, remember? The land that God had given them. So we recoil at this today, but it's what they did in their culture. Now here, Onan took his brother's wife, uh, but in, in, employed a rather crude form of birth control. Uh, foolish, you know. Uh, now it says God saw the evil that Onan did and put him to death as well. Now, just so you understand, I have heard some people say that the evil was, you know, that he employed any birth control at all. Uh, I, I think that's a misapplication of this passage. You know, if you want to make that argument from Scripture, I think you have to go somewhere else. I don't I think that's the evil that's talked about here. I have also heard the opinion that God took, you know, that God took Onan's life because he was guilty of adultery and having a relationship with his sister-in-law. And again, I think that's a misapplication. Adultery is not good, but I, I think that's a misapplication of the, of the of the passage here, you know, the, the Leverite marriage, it was a part of the law in Deuteronomy. You know, you'll see that in Deuteronomy. I think the sin here really is twofold. First of all, uh, Onan was being deceptive. I mean, look at what he's doing. He's being deceptive. He takes his brother's wife in order to seem like he's fulfilling the Leverite law. He, he, he takes it, you know, in order to seem like he's doing this marriage when actually what he was doing, he was avoiding fulfilling what he was pretending to be fulfilling. He was lying. He was acting out a lie, which is sin. A further sin, you know, his motive, look at verse 9. It says, Onan knew that his offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released the semen on the ground, notice, so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. He was acting in a totally selfish, self-centered, all-for-me way because then he would get his brother's stuff. You see, you know, and then Onan dies, uh, and it seems that Sheila was too young to take his, you know, sister-in-law at that point as a wife. So Judah sends Tamar home and says, you know, live with your father. When Sheila gets old enough, uh, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll make this arrangement, and you can be his wife and, you know, fulfill the love right responsibility. Here's where it gets creepier. Pick up with me, verse 12. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the, Ad the Adulamite, uh, went up to Timnah to the, sheep to the sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. <laughs> Say that six times fast. Uh, so she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Enim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you? he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she got pregnant by him. 
She got up, left, and removed her veil and put on her widow's clothes, uh, put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is beside the road to Enim? Uh, there has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah, saying, I couldn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no cult pr prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we'll become the laughingstock. After all, I did send the young goat, but you couldn't find her. Now, we're going to pause there again. Um, really, this is kind of fairly straightforward here. Creepy, you know, um, but clear in what happened. The op uh, notice the opening, uh, opening words in verse 12. After a long time, this chapter, this chapter covers probably at least 20 years. Maybe even longer. I mean, notice what's going on here. Judah gets married. He has three sons. The oldest son get, grows to be, you know, old enough to get married, and he gets married and he dies. The second son is old enough to get married. He gets married and he dies. All of this was going on while the events, you know, of, of chapter, well, maybe even 37 all through 50, while those things are going on, while all that's going on with Joseph, that this, this stuff is going on here. You know, they're, they're kind of running parallel, even though you have them, you know, in, in this order here. And here, you know, Judah's wife died, it seemed. He properly mourned for her. And then he went about the routines of life he had to care. That's one of the hardest parts. Of, it really is. That's one of the hardest parts after someone dies is getting back to life. You know, because it's a life that's totally changed. And it's horrible. And here he is. Sheep needed shearing. Had to be done. Good friend here, you know. A friend travels with him to get this taken care of. It's a good friend. Yeah, it's a it's a good friend. Help him to get help him to get through the things in life, you know. And it says while he was traveling, his daughter-in-law realized that she had been either forgotten about or purposely overlooked. You know, I mean, it, it, neglecting widows was a very serious thing for them, much more serious than it is for us. Uh, for one thing, you know, we we kind of think, well, you know, they'll be taken care of. I mean, there's government programs, there's these others. They didn't have any of that. So taking care of widows was real important. You know, if, if you had a widow in your family, you really needed to take care of them. Otherwise, they literally could starve to death. Much more important. Well, here Judah is not fulfilling his, you know, words to to Tamar or or he was lying, you know, one of the two, uh, which is a sin. He wasn't fulfilling what he said he would do. So Tamar then sets a plan in motion, tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. <coughs> Foolish, uh, even uh, sinful, we could say. Um, she did this, like, notice it says, dressing like a temple prostitute. A temple prostitute was part of idol worship. This is not temple as in temple of the Lord. This is temple as in a temple of Baal or something. You know, it, it's a, it's a, this was part of their, you know, part of their uh, worship experience, if you will, of, of idol worship. Um, and so also what you have going on here, too, is in some of the pagan cultures, it was the uh, father-in-law that fulfilled the Leverite responsibility. Um, I told you it gets creepier, um, you know, there. And it seems that Tamar was simply following, you know, probably following the culture that she grew up with. 
because those you spend time with affect the choices you make. You know, and we, we see that unfolding here again. So Tamar goes through a rather elaborate scheme here to deceive Judah. She took off her widow's clothes. That's what would have identified her as a widow. And she put on this other, and it says and she veiled her face, covered her face, because this is what the temple prostitutes would do and how they would, how would they would be dressed. And so she, you know, does this elaborate scheme to deceive Judah and foolishness very quickly crossed over uh, into sin. Deceiving someone is sin. You know, like it or not, deceiving someone is sin because we don't make up the rules. You see, we know God. God is the one who talks about what it, what is evil. Uh, the fact that Judah deceived her and didn't live up to his promise does not excuse her deception. You know, that doesn't excuse her deception. You don't respond to sin with sin. We like to excuse ourselves. We like to excuse ourselves. You know, by pointing out the sin in the other person's life, you don't use sin as an excuse to sin. You don't, you just don't do that. Now, another issue here is, you know, Judah is looking to have relationships with a prostitute. There's another. Sex outside of marriage, outside of a marriage relationship, is never approved of in Scripture. It, it, It just isn't. You know, what we need to understand is because culture accepts something doesn't make it right in God's sight. Just because culture accepts something, it doesn't make it right in God's sight. And God's sight is the one we need to be concerned about. That's the one we need to be careful about. I can give you a whole list of things if you want to, you know, that our culture accepts and thinks is just fine. That God strongly objects to. That God says is flat out sin. What we also have going on here is, you know, before some people went to do their harvest or before they went to shear their sheep, they would go to the temple of an idol. They would go to an idol's temple. Why? Because you see their idols, well, this was the idol for, you know, the harvest. This was the idol for, you know, livestock. This was the idol for rain, you know. And, and they, so what they would do is they would, they would go to the, to, you know, some before they would shear their sheep would go to the temple prostitutes in a misled belief that it would bring them good fortune. Again, foolish and sinful. Now, we're not told specifically if this was Judah's intent, but I will tell you that's how the original readers of Genesis would have seen it. Those who originally read Genesis, that's, that's how they would have seen this. If this is what Judah was doing, that's clearly sinful that they, you know, that he would go to, to a temple of an idol. And then Judah's friend, you know, well, Tamar, you know, uh, Tamar gets Judah's signet ring and staff as a deposit for the promised payment of the sheep. The signet ring was like a seal, you know, in a sense, the family seal that they would put in clay, wax, mud, you know, and that was like their signature, this is me, you know, and they would be unique to that individual. So she gets this thing, and the cord was probably just a cord that hung around his neck so that it would be readily available, you know, on there. And, uh, you know, this, this is part of what she gets there, you know, and the staff, you know, that's there. And then Judah's friend goes to retrieve the items. He couldn't find Tamar, whom he thought was a prostitute, who he, you know, he thought was you know, from an, an idol temple, uh, and he couldn't find her. Let's finish this chapter, verse uh, 24. 
says, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said. Let her be burned to death. What a compassionate man. As he was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I. Since I did not give my, since I did not give to her my son Sheila, and she did, and he did not know her intimately again. And it goes on, it gives you the picture of when, when the kids were born, they were twins, and uh, we're not gonna get into that part, but you know, it's, what you see here, you know, it, it, it's, you know, when it's made known that Tamar is pregnant, notice Judah's response, let her be burned to death. Let her be burned. Having a child out of wedlock, you know, was a very serious offense to them. And according to the Jewish law, uh, both the man and the woman would be stoned to death. Now, some of the Jewish law came after this, but the principles were, were there and in place. You know, and, but this was a very serious offense. And so, you know, the, he, to, to be burned to death and, and not exactly the, the man of compassion there. Um, but so what does Tamar do? She sends Judah the signet ring and the staff that he left with her when he thought she was a prostitute. You know, Finally, we see a change here. Did you notice he doesn't try to deny or hide his sin? He doesn't try to... Look at your outline. Look at your outline. You know, make it your goal. Make it your goal to avoid foolishness and sin. Don't respond to sin with sin. Quit digging the hole deeper. You know, quit digging a hole deeper. Don't, don't respond to sin with more sin. No, you will struggle if you choose to stay away from God's people. You know, you're going to struggle. Realize those you spend time with do affect your behavior. And evil is determined by God, not by society. Simply because our culture accepts something doesn't mean it is right. Now, after all of this, Judah does two good things here in response. Notice, he admits his sin. It says, as she was being brought out, as it was being made public... He doesn't, he doesn't try, notice what he says. She is more in the right than I. She is more in the right than I. He admits his sin. It doesn't stop there. He changes his behavior. It says, and he did not know her intimately again. Here's what we need to grab a hold of. The proper response to foolishness and sin is confession and repentance. That's the proper response to foolishness and sin. Not more sin. It's confession and repentance. Admit what you've done is wrong. That's confession. He says, as she was being brought out, he confesses. He conf- as she's being brought out, that confession, admit what you've done is wrong and repent. Change your behavior. That's what repentance is. Changing your behavior. Changing it to follow God. Changing it to, to come after God. Changing it to do what God says. Changing it to live by what God says. Changing it to what, what God says is evil is evil and what God says is good is good. And we begin doing what God says we should do and stop doing what God says we shouldn't do. Confession and repentance. That's how you respond to foolishness and sin. I don't know where you're at with this in your life. 
If you find yourself further away from God than you should be, maybe further than you realized, confess and repent. You admit that what you've been doing is wrong and you change your behavior. This is how God calls us to respond to foolishness and sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us. We're all here. And I feel very confident in saying we are all sinners. And yet you have provided for us in Christ. You have extended your love to us. You have given us opportunity and chance to get things right with you. You have given us the opportunity and chance to leave sin behind. To confess to you that we are wrong and you are right. And to repent in changing our living, to reflect more that commitment that we claim to have of having a relationship with you. Or Father, maybe there's some here who don't have that relationship with you and just don't know yet and don't understand what it means to live for you. Lord, we all need that reminder. We all need that calling back. We all have those times in our life in which we need to confess to you and which we need to repent. In which we need to put you first and not our feelings. You first and not our culture. You first and not our comfort. Because it's so much more uncomfortable to be living in sin. Don't let us buy the lie that it doesn't matter. Because it does, Lord. Guide us to you. And help us to present ourselves to you for that transforming power that you make available to us in Christ. Forgive us our sins, Lord. And lead us in a way in which we would not continue in sin, but that we will leave that behind and follow you. With our whole heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.